This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. This morning's reading of God's good and perfect word comes from Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. Luke 21, 5 through 19. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers, and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, I would ask you to have it open as we'll be referencing various verses from this passage. But just before we jump in, let's take a moment and pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Lord, for the gift of assembling together as the fellowship of saints, the church, recognizing, Lord, that we have been blood-bought, bought by the precious blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, Your Son. Lord, we are thankful, Father, for Your love for us and that You sent Your own Son to die for sinners such as us. We're thankful, Christ, that You came and You willingly obeyed Your Father in every respect. We're thankful that you came in the form of an infant and lived a sinless life so that you could be our representative, that you willingly went to a tree that we deserved for death and and took our sin and nailed it there. We're thankful for the blood atonement that we have been given, that great transaction where our sins are cast on you and your righteousness is given to us. We're thankful for the resurrection and the proof that 
the offering of the Lamb of God was accepted. We're thankful for your ascension and now that you sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven making intercession for us even now as we pray as a church. We're thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit who teaches us all things, who brings conviction into us and truly changes us more and more into the beloved image of Christ. Oh, perfect Trinity, we are thankful for Thee. We pray that our hearts, our minds would be stirred towards You, that we would affectionately love You more than we love the things of this world. God, we pray for those who are struggling in our midst. We pray for those who are battling physically illnesses and facing treatments. Lord, we pray for those who are battling emotionally, discouragement, depression, loneliness. We pray, Lord, for those who are battling spiritually with temptation and sin. We know that there is true freedom in Christ, and Christ is the great physician, and we know that ultimately Christ is our Savior. And so we look to you now to feed us, to strengthen us, to protect us. We pray that you would guide us and that you would change us. Lord, I pray for my words that I would not say more nor less than you've given me to say. But God, I pray that I would be faithful to your word. In its entirety, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. On November 10th, 1942, during World War II, the Prime Minister of England, who was Winston Churchill, took to the BBC airwaves reporting that the Nazi general Erwin Rommel's forces had been turned back. Thus, Britain had won the Battle of Egypt. Churchill went on to say what is now a famous quote when he said, Now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. It's this quote I wish to etch in your minds this morning. It's this quote that I believe regards our text, specifically as it states the end of the beginning and the beginning of the end. Over the next two weeks, we will consider two sides of the same event. We will be considering chapter 21, verses 5 through 19, as it points us to the end of the beginning. The next week, we will be looking at verses 20 through 28, which points us to the beginning of the end. And as we look at this text, we're looking into the words of Jesus as he specifically describes a major event, a pivot point in history. This pivot point was the destruction of the temple, a destruction that occurred in 70 AD, well after Jesus had ascended to heaven this event, 70 AD, that culminates us moving from one era to the next. And so this morning, we focus on the end of the beginning. Look at verse 5 of chapter 21, which reads this way. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned and noble stones and offerings. We note in this text that the Jewish eyes were fixed on the beauty of the temple of Jesus' day. The Jewish eyes were fixed on the beauty of the temple of Jesus' day. Now we need to do a little bit of research regarding this particular temple. 
This temple would have been the second temple. In fact, there was a previous temple that was built by Solomon. But that temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. We can read about that for you note-takers in 2 Kings chapter 25. But this particular temple is the second temple. It came about when Cyrus, the Persian king, allowed captive Jews to go back to their homeland, Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. They were led by a man by the name of Zerubbabel. And you can read about the dedication of that temple in Ezra chapter 6, verse 16. However, there's a couple of important points about that second temple. That second temple was a great disappointment. It was a great disappointment because, as described in Ezra chapter 3, the foundation was much smaller than the first temple. So much so that the older people who saw it and recognized it wept. Secondly, we're never told that the Shekinah glory, God's presence, entered that second temple. It's important because when the first temple was constructed, there was a great movement of God in which the Shekinah glory entered that first temple. We're never told that takes place in the second temple. That is, until we know that Jesus, God's glory himself, walked around in that second temple. But there were additions to that second temple before Jesus came. And hence why it became known as Herod's Temple. Herod was a king, but this king was appointed not by the line of David, but by the Roman enemies. This king, King Herod, sought to make a name for himself to the Jewish people by rebuilding and adding on to this temple. We're told in the history logs that he assembled some 10,000 workers, 1,000 priests of masonry and carpentry ability. And they used 100 oxen to transport beautiful stones from the quarry that was nearly two miles away. Herod added onto this temple grand colonnades to make it more large and make it more splendid. According to the historian Josephus, King Herod used gold and stone and he made it to dazzle and blind the eyes when the sunlight hit this new rendition. We need to remember that in those days, most of the people lived in mud huts. So when they came to see this beautiful temple, they were in awe. We come back to verse 5 and we read, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, you can begin to see their, their jaw dropping, their awe-inspiredness over the beauty of the temple. It's this temple that they were talking about during Jesus' day, this temple of Herod. And yet all the while that they're adoring the temple, they're missing the glory of the true temple, the Son of God. The one who was there in their midst, the one who, in whom they rejected. Jesus, the true temple of God, was the one they should have been ooing over and eyeing over. But they neglected him for the man-made temple of a king who shouldn't have been. Friends, they were missing Jesus. Friends, they were missing the point for which Jesus came, which was to help us see something far greater. 
As we go back to the Old Testament, we recognize that really the last of the prophets isn't Malachi, but a man by the name of John the Baptist. Malachi talked of one who would come, a messenger who would prepare the way for the Messiah. In Mark chapter 1, the gospel, we read in verses 2 and 3, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way, the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He makes straight his path. Who is this referring to but John the Baptist making straight the way of his cousin, the Messiah, Jesus Christ? The apostle Paul picks up on this. In his letter to the Galatians in Galatians 4, 4 through 6, he writes, But when the fullness of time had come, notice the language there, fullness of time, when time was most pregnant, at the right moment in history, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. For what purpose? To redeem those who were under the law, so that they might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Understand what Paul's saying. Paul is living after Jesus had resurrected and ascended to heaven. Paul is doing the ministry of, of church planting and writing to the churches to encourage them. He's referring back to a moment in time when the fullness of time had come, when reality was put at a pivot point, when all things changed, when Jesus... God's own son, born of a woman, born under the law, came into the world. And why did Jesus come, according to Paul, for the purpose of redeeming those who were under the law? Why? So that they might be received as adopted sons, brought into the family. And as sons, they would be given the Spirit of God in their hearts. There Paul is alluding to the promise of the new covenant. Paul is alluding to what was promised in the new covenant when the old covenant had passed away. We read about this through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah in chapter 31 verse 33 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Notice the inward motion of what will take place in the new covenant. The prophet Ezekiel he also talks to this. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. The identifying of the spirit that Paul referred to as the sons of God. I will put, I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Friends, understand that this spirit is the Holy Spirit. The spirit that came on the day of Pentecost, the spirit who was there at the creation and the foundation of the world, the spirit who worked in every believer who ever believed, but he would come in a special way at the new covenant era when things were now alive and changed in a new dramatic way. This is why Jesus said in John 16 verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus is saying it's actually benefits you if I leave. Why? For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The reality of the new covenant has come. Friends, what's the point this morning? Jesus changed everything. Jesus changed everything. 
Jesus came and the new covenant promise has arrived. Jesus came in the incarnation of his birth. He took on human flesh. He walked amongst us. Jesus continued in absolute obedience to the Father in fulfilling all that the law required. Jesus even passively went to the cross on our behalf to die for us sinners. This same Jesus was resurrected on the third day. This same Jesus, some 40 days later, ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father even now. When Jesus came, everything changed. The new covenant which was established and rooted in the old covenant of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 of the promised one who would crush the head of the serpent had arrived. And everything was now different. And yet, the Jews, they rejected Jesus. The Jews would rather celebrate the temple made by a pagan king than to truly celebrate the temple of the glorious king. The Jews were missing the point. The Jews were actually caught adoring the glory of the wrong temple. Church, I ask you this morning, what about you? How often do you find yourself adoring the wrong thing? For some of you, it may be religion. It may be customs and religion. It may be tradition. And you begin to find yourself more satisfied in those things than being actually satisfied in Jesus Christ. Is that you this morning? Understand that that pivot event was set in motion when Jesus came, but that pivot event which Jesus fixes their eyes is what will happen to the temple. Look at verse 6. As for these things that you see, this glorious temple, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another, and that will not be thrown down. Jesus here is talking about judgment. Jesus is talking about judgment. And Jesus is talking about how they mistakenly gave the worship that belonged to God to a temple made by human hands rather than truly worshiping the living and true God. And so what does that bring? It brings the judgment of God. Friends, there are fewer scary things to talk about than the judgment of God. And here Jesus is really telling the people that where they're worshiping will only bring their doom. See, friends, Jesus is making it abundantly clear. Giving your glory to the wrong temple will not be tolerated. The Jewish people rejected Jesus but celebrated the man-made temple. You could almost hear them echoing their misguided fathers saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 4. They thought the temple was their salvation. They thought the temple was was the very fact that God was with them and therefore they were protected because they had the temple. This wasn't new. We saw it in the Old Testament when the ancient soldiers of Israel took the ark as a good luck piece off to war. What did God do? He allowed the ark to be captured and them to be defeated. God will never be replaced by anything we can make. God will not tolerate to be replaced. 
The problem is they were caught worshiping the sign, but they were missing what the sign signified. Church, hear me on that this morning. They were caught worshiping the sign, but they were missing what the sign signified. See, the temple was a representation of the glory of God, which Jesus, coming to earth, offered. Remember Jesus' own words in John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. And they laughed at him. They mocked him. But Jesus was talking about himself. Church, in rejecting Jesus, Jesus made it clear that judgment is coming. And that judgment was an event which ended an era. That judgment did occur, occur. It occurred after Jesus' ascension many years later in 70 AD. That beautiful temple of Herod was destroyed. The Romans desecrated the temple in 70 AD. They plundered it for its sacred things. They set fire to it and they tore it down. And by doing so, this marked the end of the beginning. The Old Testament era was done. This event marks that the better has come. This event points back to the one who had arrived in Jesus Christ. The one who had come to free those who were bound in sin to atone for their wickedness on the cross and to prove their forgiveness in the resurrection and the ascension. This event pointed to Jesus and the rejection of Jesus and the judgment that it brings. Church, Jesus had arrived, and yet the Jews rejected him and rather focused on a man-made temple. Truth of the matter is, by choosing the lesser thing, it's a lot like someone learning to drive and yet returning to the tricycle they used to ride. Can you imagine someone having the ability to drive a car and go to work and hit the highways and get their lickety split? And they say, no, no, no. Even though I have this driver's license, I would prefer to get on my tricycle and make my way to work. <laughs> what a fool! And yet that's exactly what we see was happening. As they preferred the sign rather than what the sign signified. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, the writer there says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is more excellent than the old. As a covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on a better promise. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. What Jesus provides is more important than anything else. And yet they chose the temple over him. Friends, we can very much do the same thing. People can begin to make a bigger deal about their baptism or a bigger deal about participating in the Lord's Supper and yet all the while neglect what those signs point to. Jesus Christ. Many people have been caught up in religion even nowadays to say, well, I've been baptized, or every week I participate in the Lord's Supper, as though that makes them more holy in and of themselves, missing all the while that these things point to Christ. 
But without Christ, one only faces judgment. And so the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And this was a clear dropping of a change for no longer would there be any more sacrifices made. The system of worship would now change. No longer would sacrifices be made. For now, it pointed to the truth that a sacrifice once for all time had been made, as the writer of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 declares. This destruction would reveal the truth of what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 28. That truly all things are working together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Even in the midst of judgment, good things were happening. There was a change in worship. As I've already stated, no longer were sacrifices necessary. In fact, worship became simpler. It became focused on word and prayer and baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the worship of Jesus included not only Jewish males, but included Gentiles as well, and females as well as males, and bond as well as free. The church began to take on a new identity, but this had to constantly be taught to the people who would be preaching and teaching it. Think about Peter. Three times he has a vision of a sheet from heaven with food on it that in his mind was not acceptable because it was unclean. And yet, ultimately, God tells him three times, don't call unclean what I have called clean. He was teaching young Peter the importance of saying that the Gentiles will be grafted in. Paul himself, one who was very committed to the Jewish way, is is called an apostle to the Gentiles. And then there is the famous uh, Jerusalem council in which the church has to wrestle with a new identity. Does one have to become Jewish before they can become Christian? All the while, the church was wrestling between two worlds. They were still going to temple on Saturday, and they were ultimately going to church on Sunday, and they were confused, and then the hammer came down, and the temple was destroyed. Church, it forces us to ask the question, is my worship focused on the right person? Far too often, our worship is focused more on the sign than the one whom the sign points to. Is your worship focused on the right person, the Lord Jesus Christ? For any other type of worship is unacceptable. You heard it this morning in the prayer. They thought they were doing God a favor by by building a, a calf of gold. Even their high priest was caught up in it, Aaron. But all the while, in thinking they were doing God a favor so they could worship him better, all they were doing was bringing God's judgment. Church, we're no different. We're no different than the Old Testament saints. We're no different than those in Jesus' time. How easy it is for us to veer off course and to make a bigger deal about the sign than what the sign signifies. Jesus talks about this pivot point. This pivot point in history in which everything now had changed because it was the end of the beginning. The old way in which God had dealt with man was now dying off. It was dead with the temple. As while it was always meant to be focused in and through the promised one, the promised seed of the woman, 
Genesis 3.15, that promised Messiah who would come from the line of David, that one who would be born in Bethlehem, that one in whom all of our hopes rested on. The disciples hear this. And notice they never question Jesus on the act of judgment. They know that judgment is righteous. But they do ask Jesus a question. The question is found in verse 7. When will this be? I think their disciples there are more righteous than us because there are many in churches today that say it would be unrighteous of God, unjust of God, for him to send judgment into this world. The disciples understood that God's holy and perfect justice is righteously dispensed. But they wanted to know when. When, Lord? It's in verses 8 through 19 that Jesus responds not with an answer of time, but of instruction. Jesus' words of direction here or instruction were for the disciples to prepare them for the judgment that would come in 70 AD. He's preparing them for what would take place. But friends, don't miss this. His words are also for us as we await his return in the future judgment. There's, in a sense, a double meaning, an already-not-yet tension that the scholars point to. For us today, there is much here that we can be instructed in as we look forward to the day when Christ will return. For in his first coming, he came as a baby, and he came humbly, and he came willing to die. But in his second coming, he comes to bring fire and judgment. So what can we learn? What can we learn by the instruction Jesus offered his disciples before 70 AD? Jesus instructed them in a warning not to be deceived. He said, don't be deceived. He told them not to be led astray or to fear. In verse 8 he says, for many will come in my name saying, I am he. I am he. He's referring to Antichrist. And he says at the end of verse 8, don't, do not go after them. Don't follow them. In verse 9, he says, When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid. These things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he continues about the things that we need to be aware of. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, verse 10. There will be great earthquakes and various famines and pestilence, verse 11. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven at the end of verse 11. In verse 12 we read, But before all this, they will lay hands on you, delivering you up in the synagogues and prisons and before kings and governors for my name's sake. Friends, didn't all those things happen before 70 AD? They sure did. Just think about the life of Paul in the book of Acts and all that he faced. And yet then Jesus tells them that when these things happen, we need to be reminded that we're given a unique opportunity to witness, verse 13. Being delivered will create unique opportunities to witness for his namesake. The opportunity to stand up and declare the good news of Jesus for all people. And this opportunity to be a witness actually gets an opportunity to be encouraged by God's provision, verses 14 through 18. In verse 14, he says, don't meditate beforehand how to answer. 
Don't worry about it. Don't have to stay up all night wondering what you're going to say. Here's why. For in verse 15, he says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. God's provision. Don't worry. This is going to be a great opportunity for you. You can almost hear Jesus encouraging them. Don't worry. Don't be discouraged by all that. Be encouraged with the opportunity you have to be a witness for Christ, for my name's sake. You don't even have to worry and prepare for a test. I'll give you all the right answers. What a beauty of what he provides. He says you will be delivered by your parents, by your brothers and relatives, by your friends, and some they will even put to death. Is that exactly what happened to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60? And is that not exactly what's happening to many in the persecuted church all over the world today? But then Jesus makes this promise. In his provision, he says, not a hair of your head will perish. Notice the word perish. This matches what he said in Luke chapter 12, verse 4. He said, do not fear those who kill the body and afterwards have nothing more they can do. He's referring to our eternal state. Too many of us are focused on the here and now, the temporal, the temple made by hands. And we're not focusing on the eternal, the glory of what will be. Jesus says, don't worry. Provision will be made. Romans chapter 8 tells us we're more than conquerors. We have nothing to fear. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. And then Jesus calls his disciples, his church, to persevere. Look what he says in verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. This is a hard verse for some because they read it and they say, well, I haven't been persevering too well. Well, this is an encouragement at this hour to persevere. Understand the perseverance talked about there is the perseverance of the saints, which the theologians refer to. It's the idea of those who are true believers will persevere because the Spirit of God is in them, working in them, helping them. This is why Jesus wrote in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Jesus was saying, you will truly persevere. Hear Jesus' message clear this morning. As he instructs his disciples, he says, may you not be led astray. May you seek every opportunity to be faithful. May you trust in my provision, and may you always seek to persevere. And church, may we be not led astray. May we not be afraid. May we truly trust in the one who has come, who changed everything, the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, I say this and teach this with a somber spirit because this is a heavy thing. The judgment of God is real. And there are many even here that are caught up in the outward appearances, the religiosity, the traditions of man, all the while missing the one in whom all the signs point, Jesus Christ. We've seen the Jews fix their eyes on the glory of the wrong temple question is, are our eyes fixed on the wrong temple? Do we need to readjust our eyes back to Jesus? Friends, that's what the Lord's Supper is providing us, the opportunity to refocus our eyes. That's why we gather under the Word weekly, 
so that we can be reminded of where our eyes should be fixed. My prayer for us is that we may never prefer the sign of that which the sign points. May we never prefer the sign more than that which the sign points. Remember what the Apostle Paul said. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he said, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen, so be it, to God for His glory. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Church, is all your hope resting in Jesus Christ? Are you finding in Jesus Christ the yes of all the promises of God? Or are you finding yourself looking elsewhere? May your eyes be fixed on Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we shut our Bibles, as we walk away from a hard text in the sense of seeing the seriousness to which your worship matters and recognizing that oftentimes our worship is at best half-hearted, And Lord, if we're really honest with ourselves, many times our worship is caught up in traditional models of how we think or what we expect rather than focusing on the one in whom we're worshiping. God, warm our hearts this hour. Transform our worship so that it would be acceptable to you through the blood of Jesus. May our eyes be fixed on the glory of God. And may we never be settled and satisfied with the traditions of men. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.